Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today we're looking at a video, or excuse me, uh, a photograph that was taken on film, on Ektar film. It's one of those those uh, Kodak films. There's Portrait, there's Ektar. I'm sure there's probably a whole bunch of other, like Kodak Gold or whatever the cheap stuff that you used to get for your uh, your disposable camera used to be. Uh, or your little point-and-shoot back in the 90s. But this one was shot on Ektar. I think it was one of the professional-grade films. I've really not ever known too much about film or film stocks or, like, the difference between slide film or, was it Velvia or Portra or Ektar? But I knew I, I really got into Ektar because I liked the contrasty, uh, or, I don't know, it just had, like, a really crisp look to it. And it pulled out a lot of blues and a lot of greens that I had trouble getting in some of the other film stocks I was using. Like, like I think if you use Fujifilm, you get a lot of olive tones, that sort of thing. Uh, so I liked a lot of the crisp look that I got in the color reproduction uh, using this film stock. And this was back in, I think, 2014 when we were out at, when we were out at Lomolo Lake in central Oregon. We're kind of the central Cascades of Oregon, maybe sort of north of Crater Lake. But uh, a really cool spot up there. And uh, I just kind of liked the, the silver lining of the clouds and the way that the light sort of diffused amongst this photo. It was kind of cool. But I think everything on this roll really turned out uh, pretty interestingly. I think it was from a, a trip around the Tokety Falls area, uh, which I'll probably run through a few more photos of. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. The 360 degree photo work over the last couple of weeks, which has been really cool and I've uh, enjoyed it a lot. I really like doing the 360 stuff. I think uh, back in June of 2018, we had done a bunch of podcasts about some of the 360 uh, photography stuff that we were trying to do, some of the video stuff that we were doing with the GoPro Fusion at the time. And that was all really uh, cool, and I liked that video a lot. This time I was working with a Ricoh Theta Z1, and I was going around to a few locations to try and get some photographs. Uh, specifically, I think photographs a lot in this circumstance. Not so many videos, uh, but uh, but yeah, really interested in the in the 360 photography stuff that I was able to to edit together and to, to capture during that time. So that was cool. But I went out to an area in uh, in central Oregon that was pretty cool and went up on like a hillside to uh, do some 360 work. And it's cool out there because you can really see the topography of how the Great Basin was formed at the, well, I guess like during the whole era of the Pleistocene as it was for a long standing period of time. Uh, like a, a a lake. It was just a big lake out there. And then as things started changing at the end of the Pleistocene, I think there was huge changes that, that ended the Great Basin stuff, that ended a lot of the megafauna that was in the area. And that kind of changed the topography of the landscape over the last 10,000 years to be something that's much more of the high desert, sagebrush, juniper tree, exposed rock uh, landscape that we see today and a lot less of the uh, forested, uh, temperate kind of mountain climate that we have through the Cascades and through part of Oregon. I'm sure it was always more dry given the rain shadow of the Cascade Mountains there. But I think that for a long period of time, as according to signs posted on my drives, uh, 
in areas where I go hiking sometimes. But, uh, you know, like when you go up to some place and it says, you know, this area so such and such time ago had these animals in it. Well, you see like giant beavers or you see like camels or, or giant sloths, I guess they had in the area too. There's all sorts of stuff that they had uh, that ended up being wiped out, I don't know, 100,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago to what, 10, 20, 10,000 years ago, something like that. There's a lot of changes that happened over the period of the Pleistocene, I guess during what they call the Quaternary Period. A, a period of uh, glaciations that the Earth has been involved in for the last 100,000 or 200, maybe a million years. I'm not sure. It's, it's the last couple hundred thousand years we've been going in these cycles of glaciations. Or, you know, we're in an ice age period. So we go into an ice age, like we have ice on the Earth right now, and it'll be more ice at a point and then less ice at a point. More ice at a point, less ice at a point. I guess that's been going on for what they say somewhere around like 200,000 years of these 30,000 year periods of glaciation to non-glaciation uh, where like, I think we're coming, we're like on the far end of the glacial maximum now. So we had the, with the glacial maximum about like what, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, or is that right? No, it must've been like 15, 20,000 years ago that we were at the maximum. Then it started receding, I suppose. That's when we were able to no. That doesn't make sense. We had like the land bridge, like the Beringia stuff where people got over. That was probably fifteen to 20,000. Sea levels were lower. They sailed away at like 400 feet. They skirted along the coastlines. They came over through the land. So that was all pretty long ago. Well, anyway, at some point, like, like I was there, like I'm going to figure out, wait, let me remember. <laughs> let me think back to 15,000 years ago. Where was I? Yeah, I wasn't here. Uh, so I don't know what happened. But apparently there's been some recorded evidence that I was learning about. Um, in I think it's like Monteverde down in Chile. And that's a location where uh, I think they had carbon dated something to 15,000 years old. Like human remains, human element remains. There's uh, there's like a, a few locations here in Oregon where they, they, I guess, have evidence of the Clovis people. That's sort of around like the 11, 12, 13,000 year mark. And then there's other evidence of things that are, I don't know, within like the, it's tough. It's like anything from like 7,500 years to 15,000 years ago seems to all kind of be in flux of a date because there's really not many, not many perfect ways to date that. And if it's a cultural artifact, like a, an arrowhead or a pot shard or a scraper, there's there's some indication of how those things are going to be created or how those artifacts are going to be created and how those are going to remain like Folsom points or Clovis points are pretty distinct from each other, but they're not really culturally distinct from each other. So it could be like a variation of many different tribes and languages and peoples, uh, all well unrelated to each other, but related with a similar vein of technology for a few thousand years of, you know, their, their tool use shape was kind of similar because they're all kind of from a similar descendancy. But I think when you get like a more than a hundred miles away, your your languages separate over you know, like a couple generations. You're just going to speak different languages. Um, but man, wild stuff. Anyway, so I don't remember where we even started with this, but I was out in Eastern Oregon exploring the Great Basin. I went up on a hillside in public land, and I was doing some 360 photography work with the Rico Zeta. Oh wait, Rico Theta Z1. That's what it is. 
and yeah, I was capturing some stuff on a hillside, really beautiful areas up there where those ridges kind of drop in and out. And so it's cool when you get like up to a higher elevation, you can kind of see the pockets of where these lakes and pools of water and uh, had kind of sat and rested for what seems like. I think I was saying something about recording some 360 photographs up on some public land in the high desert in the, the Lake County Great Basin area of Eastern Oregon. Beautiful spot over there. I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it was awesome to, to use the Ricoh Theta Z1 to be capturing some images uh, up in that area. It's cool when you're at a higher elevation and with the 360 camera, uh, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of, I don't know, it, it provides a, a little bit of a, a different perspective. It seems silly to say like wider, but uh, when you re, when you kind of replay those images and you're able to sort of look around in context of what's to the left and to the right of you, you're kind of able to put together the the context of the landscape a little better and a little faster than you could if you just had a series of individual photographs that had segments of the wider landscape captured in it. So it was cool at that higher elevation. Uh, you could you could kind of look down to areas that we had been hiking around earlier in the day through uh, some of the ridges and troughs that would be uh, over in that area. And you can look down, you know, it's like uh, 500 feet down in elevation to what we thought was kind of the mountaintop pass. And then past that is another maybe thousand foot or a couple hundred foot uh, drop in elevation as it goes down toward the lake basin area. So all that was pretty cool. And, and what was also cool about it is just sort of visualizing how populated that area had been in the past. I think, uh, you know, prior to uh, the Western expansion of the United States and uh, as thousands of years had passed by and uh, this region of land in the Northwest it had been populated and that region specifically had been populated by uh, nomadic tribes that had been able to travel and subsist off of uh, the wild game that was there. I think a lot of like antelope and deer and it looks like bighorn sheep uh, by some of their, uh, well, I don't know, some kind of sheep, but uh, it looks like that from uh, from some of their, their pictographs and petroglyph information that they left there. And the dynamics of some of those populations of animals have changed in the time. Uh, now given like modern day, I don't know if, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of sheep out there in Lake County, but there's one drawn on a rock out there, so they must have been trying to look for it. There's a lot of them in the southwest as you move it into the, I think, the Modoc tribes. From That's more of a 3,000 to 25, 2,000? I don't know. It's probably about 3,000 to 600 years ago sort of a thing. But, or 100 years ago, really. I think that was like Captain Jack over there. Captain Jack Stronghold for the Modoc Indian Reservation area. Uh, that was like in the Indian Wars of the 1850s, so... They last until then, but uh, um, yeah, there's some information about uh, some of the uh, uh, Paiute, the Paiute Indians. I think the northern Paiute that were in that area of uh, southern, southeastern Oregon, Nevada, then into Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, if I kind of understood right. But I know there's some fluctuations in there um, and, and differences in timing and stuff, but... But yeah, it's all uh, pretty cool stuff. It was really uh, it was awesome to get out there. It was, get, it was cool to get out and kind of walk around in some areas of uh, some public land where we still have some access and still get out to um, try and do some photography stuff even in this uh, period where you're supposed to stay home and there's a lockdown. It was, uh, it was cool to kind of get out and try and do some exploring and some 
social distance conscious. Um, I mean, hey, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't really have to be around a lot of people. It's better to do landscape, wildlife photography work while you're uh, sort of in some type of isolation. I'm sure like a lot of hunters are kind of considering something like that too. You know, hunters, fishermen, people are like hiking or, uh, you know, a lot of those solo activities. It's cool that, uh, you know, this kind of, this time uh, sort of has provided a little bit of a reset for probably a lot of people out there to uh, have a bit more time to invest in some of the things that they would want to. I suppose a lot of folks are probably stuck more in their local area, but um, but it's a great time to uh, to get to invest in some things that seem more important to you. So that's what I've been trying to do. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. You can check out more at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. I've been doing a ton of updates over there. Is there a plane taking off? Sounds like there's a prop plane that's about to fly over my head. It's like that scene in North by Northwest where Cary Grant starts getting run down by that biplane. That'd be scary. Let's hope that's not in my future. You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. And I'm happy with the... A7R so far. In fact, I've been looking at uh, trying to pick up a battery grip for it. You know, I did a wedding this weekend, which was great. Um, shooting a wedding, and, and those are those are really fun events to go through. And the A7R did a pretty good job in almost every capacity. I love the low light of it. The way the sensor works is really great. Super high quality. All of those things, they fit the mark for what for what I need. But it was interesting. I was noticing that in low light, the autofocus... For that camera, it really doesn't function in the way that I need it to, or I'm missing some stuff that I really want, and that's where I see the real benefit in um, in some of the older systems. I mean, even like con- like contrast-based autofocus systems that were in the Nikon or Canon systems for the last like 15 or 20 years are really superior to what I'm seeing in some of the expression of what the early uh, Sony autofocus stuff can do. You know, it's like in focus, right? You're looking at a frame, it's in focus. Your autofocus point is on the thing. It's a contrast point. There's plenty of light on it. You go to autofocus and then your lens just spins out and it does nothing for like four seconds. It just spins out to infinity. You see just blurriness. You lose the moment completely. It comes kind of back in. Maybe it finally grabs focus and then you take the picture, but you kind of miss everything. Or you, you just, I don't know, like there's a lot of times where you, you're, you're waiting for the camera to focus. But really should just be like, pull up to your eye, it sees focus, you hit it, grab it, click it, go. I'm having a harder time with that than what I thought I might. And I think some of that could be because of uh, the, uh, the lack of the phase detection autofocus system that like the, the newer A7R... 2 has, or the A7 II, A7S II, A9, or, yeah, A9, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a Sony one. And, like, a lot of the new Canon cameras, they have this uh, phase detection system. It's supposed to be some better 
multiplexing system of finding autofocus, but there used to be systems that worked pretty good. Like my D3 had 53 autofocus points and it could pull up, I think, it, I don't know, something like that, but it, you know, it had plenty of autofocus points and it could grab your autofocus point. Even in pretty low light, it could kind of get, oh, that's at infinity or, oh, that's pretty close to right next to me, so I'll stay there. And so it's interesting kind of learning how that behaves, but overall, the photos from the wedding came out really well. A lot of the stuff worked out very nicely. I've been really happy with it. But another thing that I noticed is with running with running a camera as a device, like more like an iPad or like well, more like your phone, you know, where it's got it's got some screen on a lot of the time, it's got processing stuff going on, it's moving gigabytes and gigabytes of data to a card. It's just drawing from the battery almost constantly. I mean like during a wedding, I guess to kind of think of power consumption like this, I wrote forty eight gigabytes of data to SD cards. And so that's going to take some amount of battery energy, you know, stored energy to write all that data to a card. And so in that capacity, I kind of do get that it would take a good bit of power to, to write that much information down, to capture it and then write that much information if you think about everything that it has to do. So in that way, and then run a screen and, you know, run the processing and run it visually and all that. Uh, so I kind of forgive it in a capacity. But what I noticed though is that I really did go through a couple batteries uh, shooting in just sort of a regular fashion at this wedding for, for most of the day. It was like a full day of shooting, but it, but it really was burning through those batteries pretty quickly. Like you look at it, you're like, Oh, Whoa, I just, I just use like 10% in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and so with that, I was kind of thinking, and as it's been the plan for a long time for just, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, uh, best use case for professionalism. What I really want to do is get the battery grip that goes in accompaniment with the A7R and the battery grip, I think, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a Sony piece that fits. Yeah, everybody's seen a battery grip before, but you know the one where you can throw the two, the two camera batteries into the battery grip. You can get an extended amount of life from your camera that way, and you get like the, the portraits or what is it like the vertical shutter release? You know, so you can flip your camera up and shoot in portrait mode. And uh, uh, yeah, I like the size of it, the look of it. Uh, it'll be an awesome kind of compact uh, professional. What is it? Not SLR. I keep wanting to say professional SLR, but an interchangeable lens camera. An interchangeable lens camera. That's rolling right off my tongue, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I want to go for the, uh, for the battery grip, though, and I think that could kind of uh, solve some of the problems that I'm having with battery usage issues of the camera kind of coming up dead after, after two or three hours or whatever it is. So, I don't know. I've heard, uh, I've heard a plenty of other people in relationship to wedding photography kind of complain or grouse a little bit about some of the features that are associated or some of the things that make the workflow of wedding work of a wedding shoot go by a little bit more difficultly with uh with a featured camera like the a7r but i've heard of people that are really into it too so you know it seems like uh it seems like a couple different things but low light autofocus definitely an issue on that camera I can definitely tell that, uh, that there's some stuff it doesn't do. Now, so with that and with the concept of, like, what I really like to shoot or, you know, like, kind of still moving things or the, the landscapes, low light, fine art stuff, if I try and get into that more, I wouldn't really run into that same kind of problem uh, with as much repetition because, you know, you're not shooting a high volume of frames. You're not shooting an event-based situation. Um, so it's kind of a different sort of scenario, and you don't really seem to... You, you're, you're wanting to manual focus and take time and take multiple frames of the same thing in, uh, in some, of those, uh, some of those more set-up fine art situations. 
or landscape situations. Like you're trying to take your time in those. Whereas in with event and wedding photography, that kind of process, it's just it's really fast. You're trying to move different moving elements into different places and get photographs of them. And you're just doing a lot all at one time over a short amount of, of you know, length of the the amount of time of the you know the event. So I don't know. This is all right. I did a great, uh, had a great time at the wedding, had a bunch of, or, you know, saw a bunch of people, had a bunch of food, got a bunch of great photos, brought them home, started processing them. That's a really interesting part of, you know, going through like a big batch of photos. And I've gotten kind of used to that over the time of getting through a big batch of photos, but it is always sort of overwhelming when you're like, wow, that's a lot. That's like a whole big data project I got to go through now. Like I, <laughs> you don't realize like how much, uh, it was, it really takes to get through a bunch of stuff when you finish it. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.